Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. C.S. Lewis, Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism, Part 2. Now for my second bleat. All theology of the liberal type involves at some point, and often involves throughout, the claim that the real behavior and purpose and teaching of Christ came very rapidly to be misunderstood and misrepresented by his followers, and has been recovered or exhumed only by modern scholars. Now, long before I became interested in theology, I had met this kind of theory elsewhere. The tradition of Jowett still dominated the study of ancient philosophy when I was reading greats. One was brought up to believe that the real meaning of Plato had been misunderstood by Aristotle and wildly travestied by the Neoplatonists, only to be recovered by the moderns. When recovered, it turned out, most fortunately, that Plato had really all along been an English Hegelian, rather like T.H. Green. I have met it a third time in my own professional studies. Every week a clever undergraduate. Every quarter a dull American don discovers for the first time what some Shakespearean play really meant. But in this third instance I am a privileged person. The revolution in thought and sentiment which has occurred in my own lifetime is so great that I belong mentally to Shakespeare's world far more than to that of these recent interpreters. I see, I feel it in my bones, I know beyond argument that most of their interpretations are merely impossible. They involve a way of looking at things which was not known in 1914, much less in the Jacobian period. This daily confirms my suspicion of the same approach to Plato or the New Testament. The idea that any man or writer should be opaque to those who lived in the same culture, spoke the same language, shared the same habitual imagery and unconscious assumptions, and yet be transparent to those who have none of these advantages, is in my opinion preposterous. There is an a priori improbability in it which almost no argument and no evidence could counterbalance. Thirdly, I find in these theologians a constant use of the principle that the miraculous does not occur. Thus, any statement put into our Lord's mouth by the old texts, which, if he had really made it, would constitute a prediction of the future, is taken to have been put in after the occurrence which it seemed to predict. This is very sensible if we start by knowing that inspired prediction can never occur. Similarly, in general, the rejection as unhistorical of all passages which narrate miracles is sensible if we start by knowing that the miraculous in general never occurs. Now, I do not here want to discuss whether the miraculous is possible. I only want to point out that this is a purely philosophical question. Scholars, as scholars, speak on it with no more authority than anyone else. The canon, if miraculous, unhistorical is one they bring to their study of the texts, not one they have learned from it. If one is speaking of authority, the united authority of all the biblical critics in the world counts here for nothing. On this they speak simply as men, 
men obviously influenced by and perhaps insufficiently critical of the spirit of the age they grew up in. But my fourth bleat, which is also my loudest and longest, is still to come. All this sort of criticism attempts to reconstruct the genesis of the texts it studies, what vanished documents each author used, when and where he wrote, with what purposes, under what influences, the whole Zitz im Leben of the text. This is done with immense erudition and great ingenuity, and at first sight it is very convincing. I think I should be convinced by it myself, but that I carry about with me a charm, the herb Molly, against it. You must excuse me if I now speak for a while of myself. The value of what I say depends on its being first-hand evidence. What forearms me against all these reconstructions is the fact that I have seen it all from the other end of the stick. I have watched reviewers reconstructing the genesis of my own books in just this way. Until you come to be reviewed yourself, you would never believe how little of an ordinary review is taken up by criticism in the strict sense, by evaluation, praise, or censure of the book actually written. Most of it is taken up with imaginary histories of the process by which you wrote it. The very terms which the reviewers use in praising or dispraising often imply such a history. They praise a passage as spontaneous and censure another as labored. That is, they think they know that you wrote the one, Curente Calamo, and the other, Invita Minerva. What the value of such reconstructions is, I learned very early in my career. I had published a book of essays, and the one into which I had put most of my heart, the one I really cared about and in which I discharged a keen enthusiasm, was on William Morris. And in almost the first review, I was told that this was obviously the only one in the book in which I had felt no interest. Now, don't mistake the critic was, I now believe, quite right in thinking it the worst essay in the book. At least, everyone agreed with him. Where he was totally wrong was in his imaginary history of the causes which produced its dullness. Well, this made me prick up my ears. Since then, I have watched with some care similar imaginary histories, both of my own books and of books by friends whose real history I knew. Reviewers, both friendly and hostile, will dash you off such histories with great confidence, will tell you what public events had directed the author's mind to this or that, what other authors had influenced him, what his overall intention was, what sort of audience he principally addressed, why and when he did everything. Now, I must first record my impression, then distinct from it, what I can say with certainty. My impression is that in the whole of my experience, not one of these guesses has on any one point been right, that the method shows a record of 100% failure. You would expect that by mere chance they would hit as often as they miss, but it is my impression that they do no such thing. I can't remember a single hit, but as I have not kept a careful record, my mere impression may be mistaken. What I think I can say with certainty is that they are usually wrong. And yet they would often sound, if you didn't know the truth, extremely convincing. 
Many reviewers said that the ring in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings was suggested by the atom bomb. What could be more plausible? Here is a book published when everyone was preoccupied by that sinister invention. Here in the center of the book is a weapon which it seems madness to throw away, yet fatal to use. Yet in fact, the chronology of the book's composition makes the theory impossible. Only the other week a reviewer said that a fairy tale by my friend Roger Lancelin Green was influenced by fairy tales of mine. Nothing could be more probable. I have an imaginary country with a beneficent lion in it. Green, one with a beneficent tiger. Green and I can be proved to read one another's works, to be indeed in various ways closely associated. The case for an affiliation is far stronger than many which we accept as conclusive when dead authors are concerned. But it's all untrue, nevertheless. I know the genesis of that tiger and that lion, and they are quite independent. Now, this surely ought to give us pause. The reconstruction of the history of a text when the text is ancient sounds very convincing. But one is, after all, sailing by dead reckoning. The results cannot be checked by fact. In order to decide how reliable the method is, what more could you ask for than to be shown an instance where the same method is at work and we have facts to check it by? Well, that is what I have done. And we find that when this check is available, the results are either always, or else nearly always, wrong. The, quote, assured results of modern scholarship as to the way in which an old book was written are assured, we may conclude, only because the men who knew the facts are dead and can't blow the gaff. The huge essays in my own field which reconstruct the history of Piers Plowman or the Fairy Queen are most unlikely to be anything but sheer illusions. Am I then venturing to compare every whipster who writes a review in Modern Weekly with these great scholars who have devoted their whole lives to the detailed study of the New Testament? If the former are always wrong, does it follow that the latter must fare no better? There are two answers to this. First, while I respect the learning of the great biblical critics, I am not yet persuaded that their judgment is equally to be respected. But, secondly, consider with what overwhelming advantages the mere reviewers start. They reconstruct the history of a book written by someone whose mother tongue is the same as theirs a contemporary, educated like themselves, living in something like the same mental and spiritual climate. They have everything to help them. The superiority in judgment and diligence, which you are going to attribute to the biblical critics, will have to be almost superhuman if it is to offset the fact that they are everywhere faced with customs, language, race characteristics, class characteristics, a religious background, habits of composition, and basic assumptions which no scholarship will ever enable any man now alive to know as surely and intimately and instinctively as the reviewer can know mine. And for the very same reason, remember, the biblical critics, whatever reconstructions they devise, can never be crudely proved wrong. St. Mark is dead. When they meet St. Peter, there will be more pressing matters to discuss. You may say, of course, that such reviewers are foolish insofar as they guess how a sort of book they never wrote themselves was written by another. They assume that you wrote a story as they would try to write a story. 
The fact that they would so try explains why they have not produced any stories. But are the biblical critics in this way much better off? Dr. Bultmann never wrote a gospel. Has the experience of his learned, specialized, and no doubt meritorious life really given him any power of seeing into the minds of those long-dead men who were caught up into what, on any view, must be regarded as the central religious experience of the whole human race? It is no incivility to say. He himself would admit that he must in every way be divided from the evangelists by far more formidable barriers, spiritual as well as intellectual, than any that could exist between my reviewers and me. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>